would invite you to open your Bible to Titus, Paul's letter to Titus, as we continue our study and really come one step away from the end of this letter. My intention today is to preach Titus chapter 3, verses 9 to 11, and then Lord willing, next week we'll cover the last four verses. As we come to the last two messages, I'd like us to read uh, the whole letter as some of what uh, Titus says in chapter 3, verses 9 to 11, really reflects some of the themes that he has in chapter 1. And so I think it will be helpful for us to have the whole letter in our mind as we consider these instructions that the Spirit inspired Paul to write to Timothy. So follow along as I read, starting in Titus chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe or are faithful, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient, worthless for any good deed. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge the bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, 
to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis which we have done, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you, greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. When you think about this letter, there are two major themes. Uh, The first theme is that Christians must understand what it means to live as a Christian in an ungodly and especially in a hostile culture. The second theme is that the church needs to be protected from false teaching and false teachers who would undermine the gospel and Christian living. The first theme relates to individuals, how individual Christians should live. And the second theme is concerned with the corporate body of the church. Every organization has a raison d'être. I probably said that awful, Teresa, didn't I? (laughs) Teresa just came back from French language school. That French saying, however you say it, is a reason to exist. A reason to exist. Organizations have goals and purposes and mission statements. Uh, The theme 
of Christian living here in Titus is one of the purposes of the church. Namely, that we must disciple Christians such that the surrounding culture can observe the lives that we live and see the transforming power of the gospel. In chapter 2, verse 5 here in Titus, Paul says that Christians should live in such a way that the word of God will not be dishonored. And then in chapter 2, verse 8, Christians should live in such a way that opponents will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And then chapter 2, verse 10, Christians should live in such a way that the doctrine of God our Savior will be adorned or seen as beautiful. We are the light of the world, Jesus says, and it would be contrary to the purpose of our existence if we shied away from, a, from public demonstrations of Christian living. Instead, we should live in such a way that the unbelievers who are around us could look at us and have sufficient evidence to glorify God. A question has often been asked, if you were on trial to determine if you were a Christian, would there be enough evidence and witnesses to convict you? Well, here in Titus, the emphasis is on this purpose of manifesting the power of of the gospel to change lives. From other scriptures, we know that the primary purpose of the church is to proclaim the gospel so that many will hear the good news that forgiveness of sin is available through Jesus Christ and His substitutionary sacrifice on the cross and that anyone who would believe in Christ can have life in His name. Those two purposes of discipleship and proclamation evangelism are encapsulated in what we call the Great Commission. The Great Commission is those, are, are those final instructions of, that Christ gave before he ascended into heaven in Matthew 18, excuse me, 28 verses 18 to 20, where Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So there we have both the proclamation and the teaching purpose of the church, as well as the living out and the obedience purpose of the church. The church is not like a school whose mission is to get as many students as possible through the system without really any attention to how those students uh, use that information in their lives. There are indeed some out there who believe that faithfulness means that we need to get as, as many people through the church as possible and inside the building. Uh, and that's all that matters, that we just need to proclaim and proclaim. And it doesn't matter as much that we put effort into helping believers grow in their walk with Christ. You might remember that a number of years ago, one of the most influential and largest churches in our nation publicly repented and confessed, we've been doing it all wrong. Let me give you a quote. They said, quote, we made a mistake. What we should have done when people crossed the line of faith and became Christians, we should have started telling people and teaching people that they have to take responsibility to become self-feeders. We should have gotten people, taught people how to read their Bible between services. That doesn't mean between first service and second service, but between Sunday to Sunday. We should have taught them how to do spiritual practices much more aggressively on their own, unquote. And they went on to explain their failure to make disciples. 
what they're admitting is that they made a lot of converts, but no disciples. And so they learned through surveys that people were dissatisfied with the church because they weren't growing in their faith. Their, their methods were guided by the culture, not by Scripture. And so when they inspected the fruit, they found out the tree is not all that healthy. The church's purpose is to proclaim not just the gospel, but the whole counsel of God. In 2 Timothy 4.2, all pastors are commanded to preach the word. Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 that he did not shrink back from declaring to them the whole counsel of God. According to Ephesians 4, the way we grow in faith, the way we grow in maturity, is by speaking the truth, all of the truth, in love. Paul said in Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness to your hearts to God. Paul told Timothy in his first letter, until I come, give attention to the public reading of scripture and to exhortation and to teaching. To these, we could add other passages that make it clear to us that the church should be saturated with the Word of God. And when I say the church, I don't just mean our Sunday services, but I mean the whole life of the church. When we get together, certainly on Sunday mornings, whether for the service or for classes, when we get together for small groups, when we get together more socially for fellowship and encouragement, our private conversations also should be saturated with the Word of God. And the reason for this, the reason why this is so important is because the Word of God, the Scripture, is the truth. It's the truth. It's the revelation from an infinite God who knows everything to a finite people who cannot even begin to discover the most important things about life on our own. The Scripture contains everything that God knows we need to know in order to live a life according to His design as He made us. A Christian can function and be healthy without their own copy of the Scripture, as most Christians did for the first 1,500 years of church history, but they cannot live and function and be healthy without a growing knowledge and understanding of the Word of God. And because the word is central to Christian living and the health of the church, it's also the church's responsibility to protect the truth from those who would seek to undermine it. After giving the qualifications of elders and deacons in 1 Timothy 3, Paul wrote, But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The church exists to, to guard, to protect, to uphold the truth, which is sound doctrine. This is why the elders of the church in Scripture are not defined as visionaries or entrepreneurs or successful business managers, but rather as teachers and defenders of sound doctrine. We see that affirmed in Titus chapter 1. Elders must teach and defend the truth, not merely so that the light of the truth doesn't go out, but also because the impact that right or wrong thinking has on the lives of people. 
We've said this as we've studied Titus. Wrong thinking leads to wrong living. Or as we learned this weekend, those who were part of the conference, bad ideas have devastating consequences. Every sin that you and I commit has as its, at its root some lie that we believed to either motivate or excuse our sin and our behavior. Even true statements that are incomplete can lead us into sin. The thought, God will forgive me, is one of the most common, true, but incomplete thoughts that opens the path to sin in our lives. When we see God and ourselves rightly from Scripture's perspective, Psalm 19 says it restores the soul. It makes us wise. It brings joy to the heart. It gives strength and insight. Psalm 119 is an extended exaltation of the Word of God, and it gives us dozens of blessings and benefits that come to us when we're saturated with Scripture. Benefits like it keeps us pure, prevents us from sinning, it it revives the downcast, it elevates our worship, it causes us to hate sin, it trains us in righteousness, it gives us discernment, it comforts us in sorrow, makes us wiser than our teacher, gives us joy, guides us in decisions, and so much more. And so with all the blessings and benefits that Scripture has in the lives of believers, you can understand why our adversary, the devil, hates the Word of God so much. The Word of God is the very weapon against which Satan cannot prevail when it is properly used. Paul calls it the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 6. It's the weapon Jesus used to defeat the temptations of the devil in the wilderness. And it's the only offensive weapon that God gives us because it's the only one we need in order to engage in the spiritual battle of temptation in our lives. But Satan is pretty smart. He's been around from the beginning. He knows mankind. He knows the things that tempt us. He knows how to get at us. He knows that most Christians are ill-equipped and untrained into how to use the sword of the Spirit. And so his primary strategy in spiritual warfare is to distract from the truth or to undermine the truth. He distracts from the truth by getting people to focus on things that are of lesser importance. And he undermines the truth by putting forth subtle effort that undermines the foundation and structure of sound doctrine. Now, there's other things he does, of course, but those are two primary ways he attacks believers. Distraction and undermining. In Titus 1, Paul addresses the issue of those who were undermining the truth by putting forth false doctrine, teaching false doctrine. And so he he says that the role of elders is to teach the truth and refute those teachers and teaching for the purpose of protecting the church from that false doctrine. And here in Titus 3, verses 9 to 11, Paul addresses the problem that there are those who would distract us from the truth and draw Titus and the church's attention away from from what really matters. Positively, Paul's admonition to Titus is to stay focused. Stay focused. 
Keep your attention on what matters. Spend your time on the mission that I've given you and don't get distracted by these other things. Now we'll see next week that Paul is sending to Crete other men to deal with these distracting issues uh, that are undermining and, and distracting the church and to put out fires that are popping up. But he wants Titus to stay focused on the mission of appointing elders and teaching churches. And so as we look at Titus chapter 3, verses 9 to 11 today, in an effort to stay focused on the mission that's been given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to see two duties given to church leaders that they must fulfill to preserve the health and benefit, excuse me, the health and effectiveness of the church. Two duties church leaders must fulfill to preserve the health and effectiveness of the church. The first duty seen here is in verse 9. Simply stated, it is avoid worthless arguments. Avoid worthless arguments. Look again at verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. The command clearly is to avoid or to shun. It's the same word used in 2 Timothy 2.16, but avoid worldly and empty chatter. Titus is to avoid certain discussions like you and I might avoid a mud puddle. We either walk around it or we jump over it. And why? Because you don't want to get the mud on yourself. Why does Paul instruct Titus to avoid these controversial and worthless arguments as opposed to bringing correction? Well, in part, the answer can be found in some of what Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 26, verses 5 and 6, where he says, Answer a fool, excuse me, do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him. And then he says, Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he be not wise in his own eyes. In other words, there's a time to bring correction to a fool. And there's a time to ignore a fool. You bring correction until it's clear that the fool is not interested in the truth. And then you stop bringing correction unless you too become a fool by engaging in a fruitless conversation. But there are some issues that are not worth debating about at all. Long before Twitter, it was uh, long before Twitter made it obvious to everyone, Scripture understood the tendency of younger, immature men to spend inordinate amounts of time in pointless discussions. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2, Now flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. probably heard that verse before. You probably heard it used in the context of sexual immorality, but that's not what Paul is talking about. The the youthful impulses he's speaking about in context is that tendency to argue about anything and everything. Right before that statement, Paul said, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And then right after that statement, he said, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. Paul is trying to get Timothy, the pastor of Ephesus at the time, to avoid those issues that would be a distraction to him. And so knowing that same tendency applies, Titus, I believe, is written before 1 Timothy. 
Paul gives the same instruction, excuse me, 2 Timothy, Titus was written before 2 Timothy. Paul gives the same instruction to Titus that he also gives to Timothy, namely, avoid worthless arguments. Now, as you see here, Paul identifies controversies and strife, which are general terms, and genealogies and disputes about the law, which are much more specific. Uh, the terms controversies and strife refer to any area of disagreement, but not just minor disagreements, but disagreements that lead to marking out positions and taking sides and ultimately division. Sometimes division is good. Scripture says in 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, for there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. In other words, sometimes controversies and division reveals who are the wheat and who are the tares in the church. Other times, disagreements, disputes, divisions reveal what are the issues that we need to work through as a body of Christ to grow in unity. The letter that Paul wrote that we call 1 Corinthians was written to address questions that the believers in Corinth had that they were disagreeing about, that were causing division, but they needed an apostolic arbiter to come and tell them what position they should hold. So not all arguments and controversies are worthless. If you look at the text, clearly Paul says there, not that we're to avoid all controversies, but foolish ones. If we were to avoid all controversial issues, we really wouldn't have anything to say at all because every issue has people who disagree. You make almost any fact claim and you will find someone to disagree with you. Especially when it comes to Scripture, there will always be differing viewpoints. And when it comes to honest differences in interpreting Scripture, the, uh, the text and the meaning of Scripture, those are important controversies to address so that we can come to a unified understanding of the truth. But there are many times when debate is stirred over issues that are either so well established or impossible to establish that it's just not worth debating. For example, if someone were to come into my office and want to argue with me about the deity of Christ, I would not argue with them. I would simply present the evidence of Scripture, which is all over the place and so abundant that if they don't believe what the Scripture says after being presented with the evidence, the conversation is over. Or if someone came in and said that they believe a certain living world leader is the big A, capital A, Antichrist, that would be a very short conversation. I have no interest in Debating who that is. And identifying strife here in verse 9, the idea is any discussion that leads to fighting. Sometimes a discussion should be avoided not because the issue is unimportant, but because you can't have the conversation without fighting about it. For example, there is such a thing as cage stage Calvinist. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase, cage stage Calvinist. It refers to someone, usually a young man, who has learned the doctrines of grace, of election, predestination, and so forth. And they get so riled up, they turn into this ravenous animal that is looking for someone to devour and, and argue about election and the de depravity of man and all of those doctrines. And the best thing 
that needs to happen in that moment is that person needs to be put in a cage until they calm down and can re-enter society without nipping at the heels of unsuspecting Christians. It's one thing to be for a person to be offended by the truth, but it's not good when we are the source of strife. And so we should avoid causing strife. One of, the, one of my favorite comic images that uh, a number of years ago was more convicting than I would care to admit was an uh, image of a stick figure feverishly typing away at the computer. And off picture, you see the, the words of the wife calling out, Honey, are you coming to bed? And the wife says, I can't. This is important. And she says, What? He says, Someone is wrong on the internet. Now, the internet was not invented until 1983, but there's never been a lack of purveyors of controversies and conspiracy theories and wild doctrines and speculative the- uh, philosophies. Philosophy means the love of wisdom, and the Greeks loved to spend their time debating and discussing and listening to uh, answers and questions that it really had no answers as far as they were concerned. Acts 17 says of the Athenians, they used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Paul said to the Corinthian church, the Greeks search for wisdom. And the idea is there's this endless search. I didn't do very well in my junior high philosophy class or junior college philosophy class because I kept answering the questions with scripture. And the Buddhist feminist professor didn't like definitive statements of truth. And so while there certainly are those philosophers who have come down to us, like Plato and Aristotle, the reality is in that ancient world, there was a host of people who were interested in debating things that were pointless, that were speculative. And the same is true, though in a much more narrow way, with the Jews. The Pharisees were devoted to all of what we would call Scripture, the Old Testament, Uh, plus oral tradition. And the Sadducees were devoted only to the Mosaic books, the Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy. They thought that was the only portion that was inspired by God. Acts 23.8 tells us the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And so we know the kinds of theological debates these two groups would have because they would often bring their questions to Jesus they were intending to try and stump him and, and show him to be foolish, that he didn't have as much wisdom as they did, even though they couldn't settle the debates themselves. But Jesus would always give a definitive, clear, biblical answer and settle the debate such that they couldn't argue with him because his answers were so penetrating. But they too engaged in speculative thinking. One of the areas they often speculated about, as you see here, in verse 9, is genealogies. After the deportation of the, lower, of the southern tribes in 586 BC, along with the destruction of Jerusalem, the, the genealogical records were burned and destroyed. And since being a Jew, one of the benefits of being a Jew was having an inheritance on the basis of your lineage. That was an issue that Jews debated about after that time. Apart from that, there were those Jews who 
would look at the genealogies in Scripture and they would insert in there names and stories to go along with the genealogies that were extra-biblical, things that were speculative, things that were invented and fanciful. These stories that they would come up with in their tradition, because they weren't rooted and, rooted and grounded in Scripture, uh, they would be used by false teachers to accomplish whatever purposes they wanted. There were many oral and written traditions developed in the centuries before Christ, and they would have been well known. For example, there's the book of Enoch, supposedly written by Noah's great-grandfather, who Genesis, Genesis 5 says that he walked with God, and he was not because God took him. That's all we know about Enoch. But there's this book, supposedly written by Enoch, and it, there was enough truth in it to be plausible, enough consistency with Scripture, but enough new truth that virtually everybody rejected it as inspired by God. But yet the stories that were in it would be around and told and used. As Titus ministered on the island of Crete, such things were not worthy of discussion because they were deceptive inventions worthy only of immediate rejection. In addition to genealogies, Titus is to avoid disputes about the law. Part of the reason for that is that Paul is sending two lawyers, Zenos and Apollos, who are on their way to address those issues. Titus himself, recall, he's a Gentile. He's a Greek. He doesn't have expertise in the law of Moses. And so it would have been foolish for him to debate with the Jews uh, on those issues. But even more than that, Paul says... The reason he should not engage in those discussions, you see it at the end of the verse, is they are unprofitable and worthless. The Cretan church, as many churches in that region, had a mix of Jews and Gentiles. And to whatever degree the Jews who had become Christians were still following the Mosaic law, the Gentiles were not subject to that law. And so it was pointless for the church to engage in those debates about the law. It was a waste of time. And so Paul tells Titus, avoid those things. Don't waste your time. Stay focused on the mission. That's the first duty of the church, of church leaders, that they have in order to preserve the health and effectiveness of the church. Avoid worthless arguments. Well, what if you can't? What if the person who's uh, purveying or, or promoting that that teaching or that controversy, what if they don't stop talking and they keep doing what they do? Well, that's, that leads us to the second duty of church leaders, and that is to reject divisive people. Reject divisive people. Look at verse 10. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning. The command to reject is the same word we find in 1 Timothy 4.7, where it's translated, have nothing to do with. And in that case, it was worldly fables, but have nothing to do with. In other contexts, it has the idea of refusing to do something or declining an opportunity. So the idea here is that a factious person is wanting to continue the conversation. They're, wanting, they're continually bringing up the debate and persisting in their efforts to draw people into their circle. And so leaders are to decline their offer to keep discussing the matter. They're to reject the attempts to keep the debate going. They're to refuse to allow the divisive person to have influence in the church. 
Now in Matthew 18, you recall Jesus gives us instructions on how to deal with personal offenses in the church. When you join our church, one of the things we do in the membership process is we talk about church discipline because that's an essential component of how to live together in the body of Christ. Remember, Jesus says there in Matthew 18, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he listens to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This multi-step process is given in the context of personal offenses. Uh, the earlier trans, or the, the oldest manuscripts available to us don't have the words against you, if someone sins against you, but that seems to be the idea here. And the purpose of this process is to restore a sinner to proper fellowship with God and one another. In Galatians 1, Paul writes, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. There Paul is thinking about a believer who is literally trapped in a web that they have uh, concocted, that they've spun. And again, the, the purpose of his instructions is to restore that person, to free them from their sin that they're trapped in, in and help them have a right relationship with God and others. Now, he doesn't give a process there, and so we just assume the process is the same as what Jesus instructed in Matthew 18. One of the reasons for taking sin seriously in the church is that sin is a cancer. Not only does it grow and spread in your own soul, but it will also spread to others as well. That's why in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul admonished the church not just for tolerating sin, but for celebrating their tolerance. There was a man in the church who was in a relationship with his stepmother, and the church was saying, look at us, we're so gracious, aren't we wonderful? Paul said immediate action needed to be taken, the man needed to be put out of the church. Why? He said, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? In other words, if you tolerate sinning in the church in the name of grace, what you're doing is you're allowing that sin to spread. This was the charge Jesus made against the church in Thyatira in Revelation 2. Jesus scolds that church when he says, But this I have against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Sin is a cancer, and it always spreads. Always. You might think you can keep your sin contained. You might think that in the privacy of your own home, sin is, is going to be kept there. But that is a lie that will burn you. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 6, Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? The only way to prevent the spread of sin is to, to kill it or to put out the fire. But as long as we stoke the fire of sin in our hearts, it will sooner or later turn into a forest fire that we can't 
self-control. And so, in His goodness and mercy, the Lord Jesus Christ gives us wisdom and instructions on how to deal with sin in the church. But when it comes to a factious person, the instructions are different. If someone is struggling or wrestling with personal sin, there can be patience and grace while that person is working on and growing in sanctification. But if someone is going around and setting other people on fire through their divisiveness, there should be no grace and there should be no patience. Paul says here, after warning that person once or twice, reject them. Prevent them from having any influence in the church. The key difference between those two scenarios of personal sin and divisiveness is dealing with personal sin. That person is not likely promoting their sin and encouraging others in their sin. Whereas the factious person is. They're encouraging others to sin along with them, though they may not put it in those terms. Notice in verse 11, the reason Paul exhorts to take swift action. He says, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. This could be more more accurately translated, knowing that having been perverted, such a one is sinning. Having been perverted, one is sinning. The perfect tense of the word perverted indicates that he's not just acting in a perverted way, but rather he is acting in his way because his soul is set on a perverted path. The word perversion means to turn aside or to go the wrong way. We might use the colloquialism, that person has gone off the rails. Picture in your mind a train set from here to Florida. It's set on a track going due north, but instead of going, excuse me, due south, I do know my geography, It's going south, but instead of staying south, it gets switched onto a different track, which seems parallel, but eventually starts to move away. And before you know it, that slight diversion leads to a vast difference from the original path. When a person gets off course in their thinking and they follow an errant path, it's common that by the time others realize how far off that person is, It's not just one doctrine that needs to be corrected as if you can just pick them off the track and put them back on the new track. No, you have to back them up all the way and lay down new tracks to help them understand where they went off to begin with. The sad truth is that when someone has gone so far off the path that they are willing and happy to create division, they are unwilling to, to consider that they are wrong. And so after one or two warnings, the leaders of the church are called to reject such a person and remove them from the church. Paul modeled this in 1 Timothy when he wrote, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keep faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck according to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that, they will not, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Now, we don't know what false teaching these two men veered into, 
But Paul understood that they would not receive correction from him as an apostle and certainly not from Timothy. And so he handed them over to Satan. And simply, that simply means he removed them from the protective cover of the church so that if they were to be restored to right thinking, it had to be a work of God. But he made them vulnerable to the influence of the evil one so that they might see the consequences of their sin. Now, it's one thing to talk about this. It's quite another to experience this. When a, diverse, when a person creates division in the church, it is an extremely painful experience. Many of you have been here in years past when this has taken place. Right now, we can talk about these instructions really in the abstract what about when the divisive person is your spouse or your small group leader or that growing disciples teacher who has taught you so many things? What about if it's one of the pastors who has spent so much time with you and counseling you and, and now you're hearing from the other pastors, this person is being divisive. A factious person is not usually factious from the moment they step through the door of the church. It's normally someone who has been in the church, who has developed relationships, whom people love and trust, and yet they veer off the path. And it's that love that causes division because people love them and trust them, and so they begin to wonder, who do I trust? Who do I believe? Do I believe the person who I, I love, whom the the rest of the leaders are saying this is a divisive person or do I believe the pastors? When word starts to spread that there's division among leadership, and the, pa the person you've befriended is the source of that division, it's confusing and it creates angst. Think about this. Paul said in Acts 20, as he was giving his farewell speech to the Ephesian elders, men whom he loved and men who loved him, most of them would have been saved under his ministry. Most, if not all of them, would have been men Paul discipled personally. But he says this, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God when he which he purchased with his own blood. I know, he says, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Listen, and from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. When you think back to Jesus and the disciples, isn't it amazing that the 11 disciples, apart from Judas, thought it was more likely that they were the ones who were going to reject Christ and betray Christ than that Judas would be the one. Judas had never given any hint or any indication that he was not all in for Christ. And yet his heart had long since veered away from devotion to Christ. And eventually it became sensible in his mind, in the twisted, distorted thinking of his mind, that he should betray Jesus for the price of a slave. This is why the Holy Spirit inspired Paul 
to tell church leaders to respond with division swiftly and decisively. The longer we allow leaven to remain, the more destruction and division it will cause. And so it's not out of hatred toward a divisive person that leaders should act, but out of love for the unity and protection of the church. And so, beloved church, hear me now. If and when such an occasion arises at Whole Bible Church, when the elders need to obey these instructions, understand that it is out of love and a desire to obey Christ and to glorify Him and to protect the bride for whom He died that we obey these instructions. And when such things happen, you need to pray for the leaders and for the church because these are very complex situations. But know for certain that a divisive person is sinning, as it says here in verse 11. He's sinning. Our calling as Christians is to preserve the unity of the church. We read in Ephesians 4, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy, consistent with the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. And then he says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. When it comes to matters of disagreement in the church, Paul says in Romans 14 that our aim should be to pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. And so anyone who actively spreads false teaching or causes division and factions within the church is in direct violation of his will and is sinning. Finally, Paul says there in verse 11, they are self-condemned. They're self-condemned. That's to say the actions that they are committing, the, the, the division that they're causing is all the evidence anyone needs. That is the fruit that proves that they are in the wrong. If a factious person were to say, what, what, what am I doing wrong? Really, the answer is as simple as, look around. Look at the division you're causing in the church. Simply by pitting yourself against the leaders of the church and drawing people into your circle, you have demonstrated a heart that is departed from God's revealed will of unity in the church. And so we are called to reject a divisive person. Well, as we come to a close, I want to address a question that some might be wondering in their minds. What if I disagree with the elders about something? What if I disagree with an, a decision that they've made or something that they teach? How do I prevent myself from becoming a factious or divisive person? Well, the answer is actually fairly simple. Remain humble and teachable. One of the first signs of a divisive heart is a heart that is unwilling to be corrected. Unwilling to consider the possibility that I might be wrong. And so whatever you believe or whatever you think, say to yourself, I might be right or I might be wrong. I need to be open to correction. 
And then secondly, with that humble, teachable spirit, go to a leader or a pastor, whoever is appropriate in that situation, and express your concern, acknowledging your desire to understand and and your willingness to be corrected. And what you might find is that you're right in your concern. And hopefully that pastor or leader will receive that correction with humility. Or you might find that you're wrong. And hopefully you will receive that correction with humility. Or there might be some give and take, a little of both. But another possibility is that you might realize that after receiving the explanation, you still disagree. You think you're right, and they think they're right. And then you have a choice to make. Can I continue to submit to my elders and leaders while maintaining this, this agree, a disagreement without causing division? Or is this situation, this, this difference of opinion, so significant that for the unity of the church, it would be better for me to find another church that is more like-minded so that I don't cause division here? If you find yourself asking that question, should I, can I stay or should I go? I would encourage you to keep talking to your leaders, maybe another leader if needed, and give them the opportunity to speak into that decision. But those are the two decisions. Either preserve unity by submitting or preserve unity by finding a more like-minded church. That's why every time we have a membership class, we always say, we're just wanting to put all of our cards on the table, or at least as many as we can think of. We want you to know as much about what we believe. We want you to know as much about why we do what we do. We want to know you to know who we are as elders and as leaders in the church so that you don't find yourself six months down the road thinking, I didn't know they believed that. I, I don't believe that at all. And so we say that if you get through the membership class and you realize, yeah, I don't think this is the church for me, we say, well, we'll be glad to help you find a church that would be more fitting to where you are in your walk with Christ. Because our goal is the unity and the purity of the church. We don't want to set ourselves up collectively for failure and disunity. The more unity we have as a church, the more focused we can be on the mission that Christ has entrusted to us. When we're free from internal squabbles and arguments and division, we can be focused and devote all of our time and resources and energy to worship, discipleship, and evangelism. And so these are the two responsibilities given to church leaders, to avoid worthless arguments and reject divisive people. When we do that, we will protect the health and effectiveness of the church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have purchased us with your own blood, that you have united us not only to yourself, but to one another. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, it is our privilege to preserve that unity in loving one another the way that you have loved us. And yet we know that we are all sinners and we can be self-deceived and we can be deceived. And 
you have given, given us instructions on in how to d- deal with those situations where there is division and deception in the church. Lord, give us as leaders courage and wisdom to know when to follow such instructions and when to bring correction. Help us as a church to be passionate about preserving unity so that even when we might disagree with one another on whatever issue, we would still show love and preserve the unity that you died to accomplish. May we do these things for the sake of Christ and for his glory. Amen.